Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. The History of North America podcast series is an incredible historical adventure that chronicles the thrilling, action-packed tale of a continent. I invite you to come along for the ride. Hello everyone, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview episode. My guest today is Dr. Martin Odler. Martin is a researcher at the Czech Institute of Egyptology at Charles University in Prague. His specialty is ancient Egyptian tools, the items they used to build those fabulous, enduring monuments. Dr. Odler is a skilled and experienced researcher with many excavations and projects under his belt, Having recently completed and received his PhD, Martin sat down with me to discuss his work, and the tools that ancient people used to build enormous structures. You will find links to Martin's work in the episode description. He has many articles on academia.edu that you can read for free, and we will reference a couple of these in the talk. So if you would like to learn more, follow the links and discover his wonderful research. Now then. Allow me to introduce Dr. Martin Odler of the Czech Institute of Egyptology. Okay, so Dr. Odler, Martin, welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, and thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So you are currently based in Prague, am I correct? How uh, things, yes, that's correct. How are things going there for you and your colleagues? Uh, well, the institute is working, but the general situation is uh, not yet good uh, regarding the coronavirus. So we will need to wait a few months to <clears throat> get better in general. Sure. Yeah. Have you, but you, you mentioned uh, just before we started recording that you um, defended your dissertation in the middle of the pandemic. How was that experience? Was that, was that difficult to do or was it, did it go okay? Uh, at the start, uh, I was lucky enough to to have time uh, to to finish because uh, there was the first lockdown, uh, the better one, <laughs> and uh, then fortunately there was in September there was a still window to defend in person. Oh, very good! And uh, it was before all the lockdowns and started again, and uh, mm. the situation became much worse. Mm. So that's good. You got 
got just the right timing for defending. That's that's good. Um, okay, so Martin, supposing you went to a cocktail party and you needed to explain your research to a stranger, how would you describe what it is that you study in general? Uh, I'm interested in ancient Egyptian technology, especially of metals, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, what objects, what artifacts uh, ancient Egyptians were using for their crafts or other tasks, uh, for what material uh, were these uh, objects uh, made, mm-hmm. and uh, how was their technology and production uh, working. So how they were gathering the, the material, how they were processing it, and uh, how they uh, were using it for production of, let's say, weapons, uh, tools, uh, vessels, and other objects which can be made of metal. Uh, especially okay. copper. Sure. Okay, so uh, metals, tool work, uh, metal working and tools and things, is there a particular historical period that you specialize in or do you look at the full range? Uh, I started with the Old Kingdom, so basically uh, 3rd millennium BC, uh, but I uh, realized very soon that if you need to understand this one uh, narrow particular period, mm-hmm. you need also to know uh, about the other periods, because sometimes you can have in an archaeological context something which is later or earlier. So I started with the Old Kingdom, with the 3rd millennium BC, but I'm trying to uh, now to have more information about the other periods, especially of ancient Egyptian Bronze Age, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, roughly uh, 3rd and 2nd millennium BC, mm-hmm. and uh, also uh, ancient Egyptian let's say copper age which is basically uh four millennium bc but the the limits the chronological limits of these periods are not clear they are blurred some somewhat they're a bit fuzzy yeah fair enough yeah and is there a particular area of egypt that you specialize in like is it north south sinai or is it all over the place uh Czech Institute of Egyptology is working at the site of Abusir, uh, which is uh, near Cairo, and it's between the, uh, more fa- let's say, more famous sites of Giza and Saqqara. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that's where I started, uh, working with the material which Czech mission excavated in the last uh, decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were several uh, chance finds of uh, rather big assemblages of model tools from the Old Kingdom. So this was my uh, starting point. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, then uh, I found out that this topic was uh, not studied in that much detail Mm. in the past. So there was, um, let's say, there was an opportunity to study also other material in other museum collections. Mm. Okay. So generally speaking, if the Copper Age, quote unquote, begins roughly in the fourth millennium BC, when do uh, specific tools made of copper or alloys start to appear in Egyptian and Nubian archaeology? It's roughly uh, around the first half of the fourth millennium BC, already a Badarian uh, archaeological context. Some Badarian graves have some copper artifacts, but also uh, copper ore, malachite. Uh, these objects are rather small. But of course, already in Badarian, the graves were looted, so maybe there was more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Badarians were already, uh, we know that they were experimenting uh, with the glazing techniques. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Uh, What's that? For uh, it's um, something between pottery and uh, glass. Right. And uh, they are making uh, what is known now as ancient Egyptian faience. And okay. the earliest examples are in Badarian. Uh, so we can see that they were experimenting with what we call pyrotechnology, uh, mm -hmm. with what you can do with fire. So uh, we might expect that they were also uh, starting to experiment uh, with copper. Mm -hmm. But uh, then uh, the major breakpoint uh, is uh, second phase of Nakada culture. So uh, it's a period after the half of the fourth millennium BC. Uh, when uh, there is uh, much more copper objects, but also uh, there are first uh, safely dated archaeological contexts of the so-called arsenical copper. Okay, so with these Badarian and Nakada uh, graves, at least what survives, what kinds of objects tend to show up in those? Uh, in Badarian graves, uh, there was uh, one been found and there were some small beads made of copper Pins and beads okay uh yeah so uh basically you have uh the technology is uh in case of beads you have uh, a little metal sheet so you just uh, hammer it to the shape and in case of pins you have a uh, little uh, metal rod mm. so you are able to uh, cast this rod and uh, use it for uh maybe for textile production this is this is mm. the most probable interpretation sure. and then uh, as uh, we move to Nakada we have uh, more examples of these pins of the beads of uh, let's say fish hooks and in Nakada in the second phase we have also examples of the uh, big tool blades which are made of metal right okay so Allowing for graves to be robbed and larger objects to disappear, the, the tools start to get a bit larger and more complex as the fourth millennium continues. Continues, yeah. And uh, in the start, they are uh, these tools are inspired by the uh, tools made of stone, made of lithics, mm. because the shapes are uh, taken from the lithics. And then Egyptians, we can... Uh, we can observe how they are experimenting with the metal and they are learning the uh, mm. special properties of metal. Mm. So, uh, for example, it was very nicely shown by uh, one Polish colleague, Marcin Czarnowicz, on the uh, copper harpoons. Mm -hmm. So, in the start, they are very similar to the bone examples, made of bone, and then they start to be very angular because Egyptians realized that they can cast these angular shapes from metal, which is impossible from bone. Mm. But they were... We can see how they were slowly learning the technology, learning the craft, and uh, learning how to produce objects from this uh, new material. Hmm. So they they start by copying the tools they're already making with bone or stone, things like that, or wood. Right. And mm -hmm. as they as they become more skilled and realize what they can do with this metal, they start to experiment and innovate. Yeah, and uh, the big question. Uh, one we uh, cannot answer for now yet is uh, how they were able to uh, produce this arsenical copper, whether this was imported technology from Levant where it was used earlier, mm. or uh, they somehow uh, manage it by themselves because Egyptian Eastern desert is quite rich in mineral sources. So there might have been some sources which were used for the initial 
production of this material. Okay. So moving then into the third millennium BCE, you know, the old kingdom, mm -hmm. uh, you recently published a significant study of copper tools discovered at Giza, specifically from the period of Khufu and Khafra, you know, the great pyramids. So approximately a thousand years after the Nakata era or half a millennium, yeah, yeah. what kind of tools are turning up at Giza by that point? Uh, Giza is the most important site for Old Kingdom archaeology and it was uh, excavated quite extensively uh, about a century ago by several missions. Mm. And But most of these uh, archaeological structures they're excavated are tombs. And the objects mm. that, that were found there are uh, most of the times models, not uh, each object, but they are models. And, uh, Already Flinders Petrie, who was working at Giza, he was asking the question, where were the people living who were building those pyramids and those tombs? Mm -hmm. And uh, he was able to excavate some structures and uh, he said, well, these are these uh, uh, settlements. But actually it turned out that these are rather maybe workshops for these craftsmen. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, the project of uh, Mark Lerner uh, was able to localize uh, the settlement, Hetel Gurab. But this is mostly from the reign of uh, Khafre and Menkaura, so it's rather late in the fourth dynasty. Mm -hmm. And actually, the material which was found by Lerner, uh, we are able to connect with a small excavation uh, by Austrians, mm -hmm. which was done in the 70s by Karl Kromer, and he excavated uh, refusal layers mm -hmm. of uh, destroyed settlement and workshops mm -hmm. uh, from the fourth dynasty. And he found there also ceilings of Khufu and Khafra, mm -hmm. So we okay. have this earlier phase. We have this those big assemblages of the objects which are coming from the tombs. And now we have just a little material from the settlements and from the workshops. And our study focused on this. This was only 15 objects, mm -hmm. but these objects are coming from the settlement context. So they are uh, closer to the real life of the old kingdom of mm -hmm. the fourth dynasty. And uh, we can study those uh, small uh, fragments of the bigger uh, bigger tool blades, but also small objects uh, like needles or a fish hook. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can say uh, by this study and on the study of this corpus, how the material which was used on the settlements looked like and compare mm -hmm. them uh, with, uh, with what we know about the uh, other stuff from, from Giza, from, uh, from the settlement excavations of Mark Lenner and uh, there was also an Egyptian mission working there, uncovering in 70s some uh, copper processing furnaces. Mm -hmm. But uh, let's say this, this part would deserve uh, more excavation. Sure. So what is the main point here is <laughs> that we have tools from the settlement context. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on these, we can say that the bigger tools were made of this arsenical copper. Okay. And smaller tools like needles uh, were, uh, let's say, more heterogeneous because you had also arsenical copper, but you had also copper with impurities. So it's 98-99% uh, of copper and you have uh, some uh, uh, so-called trace elements in, that, uh, in these uh, objects. Okay, so, so you've mentioned a couple of times now this arsenical copper. So what uh, this is copper with a higher percentage of the mineral arsenic in the copper itself. So 
what what effect to what's the difference between arsenical copper and natural pure or impure copper from a, a metal working and tool perspective what's the benefit of arsenic uh, well uh i hope that uh, almost everyone remembers from the school that there was stone age mm-hmm. bronze age and between there was something called copper age and mm-hmm. in the bronze age uh in its earliest part uh, so-called early bronze age the main material which was used in whole Near East, not only in Egypt, was not uh, tin bronze made of copper and tin, uh, but so-called arsenical copper made of arsenic and uh, copper. Mm-hmm. And uh, the main advantage of arsenic is that it increases the hardness of uh, the material, Okay. but you need to uh, hammer it. Mm. Uh, of course, the main disadvantage of arsenic, uh, which is chemical element, but uh, uh, it occurs in some minerals, for example, in Eastern Desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main disadvantage is that it's toxic. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, arsenic fumes are toxic. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, this was uh, already in the 70s, there were published uh, papers which uh, proved uh, that arsenical copper was used in ancient Egypt in the third millennium BC, in Old Kingdom and in the Middle Kingdom, mm-hmm. and uh, with the start in the Nakada culture. Uh, but only now we are trying to define what that meant in ancient Egypt, how they were sourcing the arsenic, okay. and uh, how they were producing it. Uh, mm. This this is a set of questions that are still not uh, answered. Okay, sure. So just to clarify, does the... Uh, does the arsenic occur naturally in some deposits or do you have to add it to the copper? Uh, that's one of the uh, biggest questions okay. we have. <laughs> right. And uh, in the whole Near East, there is only one uh, source of uh, copper occurring with arsenic. It's a site, uh, Waditar, which is hmm. uh, located on Sinai, but outside of the sphere where Egyptians were going to Sinai to mine copper. Okay. So if Egyptians were getting this material, they needed to uh, communicate with the local population of the Sinai inhabitants, and they must have uh, cut it from them mm-hmm. for something. Mm-hmm. Because Egyptians were never there uh, in the Wadita region, which is far southeast on Sinai. Okay. But uh, we know that Egyptians were mining also... Uh, or uh, also gold in the Eastern Desert. Mm-hmm. And uh, these gold occurrences co- occur with so-called arsenopyrite. And we proposed okay. in uh, our uh, recent article that uh, this might be source of arsenic because uh, it's quite a lot of arsenic in ancient Egyptian objects. And this right. one particular site at Wadi Tar is not a huge mine. so. Uh, there is a question whether this this one particular source was uh, uh, supplementing Egypt, but also Levant with the arsenical copper, or they were trying also to get some other sources. Mm. And uh, this arsen this arsenopyrite from Eastern Desert is now let's say a hypothesis, and of course we need in the future to study it uh, closer and to try to prove it or disprove it. Sure. Okay. So once once they've once they've produced the copper and you know worked it or um, 
added the arsenic in whatever method they were they were using. What kind of tools were they producing that show up in the Giza settlement? If we sort of cycle back, you know, you mentioned the model tools that we have from the tombs and we have the settlement objects, which are more varied. What kind of what kind of tools are turning up specifically in the settlement around the Giza pyramids? Uh, well, the main problem of the settlement archaeology is that uh, if there is not some uh, major catastrophe like in Pompeii, the people who leave the settlement leave the uh, precious uh, take the precious uh, things with them hmm. so uh even the the objects which we were uh, working with them these are only small fragments which were okay. uh, considered let's say useless for uh, for the old kingdom egyptians of the fourth dynasty so hmm. these are fragments of the bigger tools but since i did a t typological study of the old kingdom uh, objects artifacts I can say that this fragment is coming from an X-plate mm. or uh, this is a, a completely normal uh, Old Kingdom needle or a fish mm. hook. So uh, the main uh, artifacts which were produced out of metal were uh, tools of the artisans. So chisels, uh, axes, edges and uh, saw blades mm -hmm. uh, and uh, drills. Uh, then also objects of the from the cosmetic toolkit, so for example, uh, mirrors or razors, mm -hmm. and uh, objects of the textile production, so for example, needles or uh, awls, which are used to pierce uh, the leather, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, also objects uh, needed for hunting, like fish hooks or harpoons, mm -hmm. and. Uh, we can presume that also weapons were made of metal in the Old Kingdom, mm -hmm. but uh, we have only iconographic sources from the Old mm -hmm. Kingdom, but uh, very little or let's say not a single example of a metal weapon blade from the Old Kingdom. Sure. So it's a, it's a common sort of perception, you know, we talk about Copper Age and Bronze Age, it's for, for non-archaeologists it's very easy to imagine that once these metals become once the benefits of these metals become obvious that they become the dominant technology of the age you know which is implied in the name but obviously we you know when you're looking at a settlement things like these metal tools those are the precious objects that they're taking and keeping as long as they can using them reusing them recycling them so in a very in a very broad broad sense you know how many how how many people in the workforce are actually likely to have been using metal tools you know what kind of percentage was it uh i would very much uh wish to know the answer for this question sure. <laughs> uh we uh, unfortunately uh what we have in sufficient number are iconographic sources hmm. and uh one of the major, let's say, problems or questions uh, is that uh, our idea of progress was not shared by ancient Egyptians. Mm. So we, uh, in school, we, uh, let's say, we got an idea that there was a Stone Age and there was a Bronze Age. So when there was stone, they were using stone tools. Uh, or Stone Age, and when uh, uh, Bronze Age came, they discovered metal, and metal was wonderful, and they thrown away all the stone uh, tools and objects. 
and uh, this is not the case uh, anywhere in the ancient world, but also in ancient Egypt. Uh, we know uh, for whole dynastic period of ancient uh, Egypt that they were using also stone tools. Mm -hmm. They are made of uh, lithics or uh, out of polished hard stones. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are used alongside metal tools. Mm -hmm. And uh, really a big question which uh, still baffles me is this percentage. How, mm -hmm. how many artisans were using the flint tools and how many of them were using the metal tools? Actually, also, uh, also from this uh, context, which was excavated by Austrian archaeologist by Karl Kromer, uh, the majority of the preserved objects were uh, made of lithics. So there were also, mm. uh, let's say, big edge blades made of lithics, made of uh, chipped uh, stone, chipped flint. Mm -hmm. And uh, these must have been used in craft operations. Mm. But... Uh, most probably the lithics were not so important. So they ended up in huge numbers in this refuse layer. Mm -hmm. But in case of metals, they picked all the big, uh, big fragments of the metal to be recycled because this is an advantage of the metal. It can be recycled into something new. But uh, what we are left with are only these uh, small fragments and pieces which were not considered important for the Old Kingdom Egyptians. My conversation with Dr. Odler continues after the break. We examine tools more closely in specific contexts, like the monuments of Giza and what we know about their construction. That is after the break. See you in a moment. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So uh, let's, let's just take, for example, say a copper chisel, and we'll use Giza as an example. If we think about the, the sheer scale of what was happening at Giza, what would a person be likely using a copper chisel for? What would, what would that tool be best suited for? The most frequent material in Giza uh, is limestone. Mm -hmm. And uh, this can be perfectly uh, worked with uh, the arsenical copper chisels or other tools. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, we can suppose that there was uh, a lot of wood worked mm -hmm. there. Uh, for example, for the boats or ships which were uh, shipping the, the stones from Tura from the opposite uh, bank of Nile, where you have the nice uh, white fine uh, limestone, which was used for the casing of the pyramids. So uh, for the limestone, uh, you are fine. Mm -hmm. uh, with the arsenical uh, copper uh, chisels and tools, Diffic more difficult situation is with the harder stones, uh, like granite. 
but uh, there was a very nice book by a British engineer, Dennis Stocks, Experiments in Egyptian Archaeology. And he demonstrated quite convincingly uh, that uh, flint tools are very good for rough working of the granite, mm -hmm. or you can use even harder stones than granite, uh, so-called uh, dolerite or dolerite. And uh, this, can, uh, this you can use for the rough shaping of the stone. Mm -hmm. And then you can uh, use finer tools or uh, in case of uh, the sarcophagi uh, made of granite, you can use tube drills, mm -hmm. which are uh, best produced from metal, mm -hmm. uh, but then you are using sand uh, as an abrasive. Mm -hmm. So you can drill in, well, it's a long amount of time, but you can drill eventually an inside space of uh, a granite sarcophagus. And mm -hmm. since you are making it only for, for a king or for several uh, very special individuals you are not produ producing hundreds and thousands of them mm. so you can assign specific craftsmen for these tasks sure of course we do not understand these processes completely mm. but uh, one of the main things is that uh, we didn't have yet sufficient data uh, for the arsenical copper metalwork from the settlements and uh, our study is the first one uh, uh, from the Old Kingdom, focusing on the settlement remains and on the chemical and uh, practical properties of uh, these tools. Mm. Okay, so com a combination of methods and, uh, you know, it's not, they're not using just one tool at a time, they're using a tool in combination with sand or stones and water to, you know, enhance the efficacy. Uh, just one last sort of logistics question, which I believe has been touched on by experimental archaeology a little bit. So let's say you have a have a workforce of skilled craftsmen working with these copper chisels and or uh, copper saws, you know, all kinds of tools. Obviously, that metal is going to blunt, it's going to degrade uh, through repeated use. So what I'm curious about is whether uh, you or anyone you are aware of has you know, sort of studied how quickly you can uh, melt down and reshape and rework these tools, basically how quickly you can recycle mm -hmm. and repair them. If a, if a workforce was, you know, working at Giza with copper tools, would they have needed a, a large support industry of metal workers to keep the supply of tools constantly rotating? Uh, this is uh, one of the uh, questions that might be partially answered by the Old Kingdom iconographic sources uh, because we have a lot of metalworking scenes uh, from the Old Kingdom mm -hmm. and uh, one of the uh, frequent motives is this uh, reshaping or uh, resharpening of the tools, mm -hmm. tool blades and uh, uh, of course the most strained parts of these tools were uh, uh, the cutting edges so they needed uh, to be uh, in repeat, repeatedly uh, resharpened and shortened mm. uh, because they were, uh, of course, the cutting edges were strained by the, by the work. And uh, there must have been some kind of uh, backup force mm -hmm. for these uh, craftsmen which were working with these tools to uh, reshape them, uh, resharpen them and if the uh, tool uh, was rather short, they could have be they could have uh, remelt uh, the material. 
Unfortunately, we don't have papyri from the Old Kingdom which would uh, speak about these processes. Only uh, in Wadi al Jarf papyri, uh, there is a mention of the shipping of uh, edge blades together with other objects. But we have uh, quite a good uh, uh, papyrus, uh, so called papyrus Reisner II mm -hmm. uh, from the Middle Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, a work log of the copper workshop attached to a royal shipyard uh, in uh, near Abydos in the uh, city Thys. Yeah. And uh, this, these are work logs uh, through, I think, three years. And uh, this is a metal worker uh, writing down which tools were shipped to him, what he did with them, and uh, how he shipped them further to uh, the, let's say, customer. It was, a, I think, steward, one of the officials of the Middle Kingdom, who was uh, most frequently bringing him the tools which needed to be repaired. Hmm. Okay, so just out of curiosity, how how many tools was that that craftsman working on a, in a given week or month? Was it a large volume or was he sort of specializing in a few few important things? Uh, it, it seems that, uh, he, uh, that uh, his work was uh, temporary so, for example, we have only, I think, only for two uh, two seasons of the Egyptian year, we have the um, the listings or uh, mm -hmm. the the entries, and then he stopped, and then the work uh, continued again, mm -hmm. and he was working uh, with about ten or fifteen uh, tool blades at a time, mm -hmm. and uh, he was noting down the weight of the tools. Because the weight of the metal was uh, the most important information about these. Mm. And um, the tools were quite heavy. So large, so, significant yeah, yeah, pieces. Yeah. So, so a, sing a, single, a single metal worker was able to manage 10 to 15 large pieces at any one time. Uh, well, there is a problem. We don't... We know what he was writing down, but we don't know what right. he was not writing down and what he was doing okay. beside his regular job. Yeah, oh, it's more more just meaning the fact that he can he can keep multiple uh, recycling tool projects on the go at any one time. That's yeah, yeah, and uh, or uh, some high official, let's say vizier or uh, somebody from the bureau of vizier can come and fetch him and take him somewhere else to do something else. And we, yeah. we also know about the, I think from this archive, there, there's a letter mm -hmm. which is specifying this, that this could happen. Mm. <laughs> Very good. Very interesting. So in the, so you've, you've worked now with uh, tools from Giza and you've, you know, studied the typology and the larger corpus of model tools, particularly. So what is what would be what is the next step that you sort of want to take with this research where do you where do you hope to go with this uh just recently we have published uh, a catalog of uh, the metal objects which we studied in the uh, egyptian museum of leipzig university mm -hmm. and we have tried to uh, show what is possible uh, with the archaeometallurgical methods mm -hmm. and we tried to define uh, the metal objects as historical sources. They are historical mm -hmm. sources of their very own special nature. Mm -hmm. You need to understand, uh, let's say, the language of the science, language of the archaeometric analysis, 
but uh, they can give us vital information for let's say historical or archaeological research of uh, ancient Egypt mm -hmm. which we otherwise cannot find uh, in the texts or in uh, iconography our intention in the future because I'm also speaking for for the team I'm not the only one who is doing uh, this work sure. we would need to uh, study uh, more material from more collections mm -hmm. and uh, start to really build up an uh, image of what was happening to metals in uh, specific periods of ancient Egypt. Because now we have little here, little there. We understand some things, but we do, do not understand the complete process, how it was happening. Arguably, this must have changed through time. Mm -hmm. So we will try to get more material. Mm -hmm. We will try to uh, study this material and try to set it in the historical, archaeological, but also archaeometallurgical contexts. Sure. Okay. So just a small project then, nothing too big. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, I'd like to I'd like to talk for a little bit now about your career as a researcher and uh, that whole aspect of your life. So what what drew you to archaeology and Egyptology as a research discipline? I was interested in what happened in the past and uh, I started with the dinosaurs and uh, I, I was I'm from the generation uh, which uh, closely followed the Jurassic Park and yeah. <laughs> all the things around it mm -hmm. and uh, then I thought well maybe some something more uh let's say younger uh is <laughs> more practical sure. and uh, i ended up with the ancient civilizations and um, in our part of the world uh, one of the most renowned institutes is the czech institute of egyptology mm. and i was also not uh, so sure about my german so i did not go to vienna uh, i went to study uh to prague I started with prehistoric archaeology and medieval archaeology and then uh, moved to uh, to Egyptology. So let's say I have an archaeological background and I try to look on the Egyptological problems with the uh, point of view of uh, an archaeologist. Okay. So you've been working with the Charles University in Prague and the Czech Institute of Egyptology specifically for many years. And... You know, as anyone who's aware of the Czech Institute knows, they are very active archaeologically. Almost always something, some excavation is running somewhere. So what kind of sites have you worked at for both the Czech Institute and other institutions? My, my main work uh, place in Egypt is Abusir. It's uh, the concession of the Czech Institute of Egyptology. It's a pyramid field of the kings of the 5th dynasty and of the officials from the fifth dynasty but also from uh, other periods of the old kingdom mm -hmm. and uh, then uh, late period mm -hmm. and uh, i worked there uh, well i started there uh, in 2009 uh, still as a student and uh, i took part in uh, most of the excavations in the last decade mm -hmm. and i took part also in uh, the institute's project in Sudan but only mm -hmm. uh, for one year and these were the uh, very interesting uh, Mesolithic and Neolithic settlements and uh, burial grounds uh, in Sudan 
in an absolutely wonderful landscape of the sixth uh, Nile cataract. Mm. But uh, my uh, main work work site is uh, Abu Sir. Okay. So do you have a particularly favorite memory or experience from working in the field, either at Abu Sir or somewhere else? Is there something that really stands out as a treasured memory? Uh, from all the things which we uh, studied and excavated in, in the last decade, maybe the, the most wonderful artifact that, that we were working on uh, was the Third Dynasty boat mm -hmm. uh, associated with a, with a tomb from the Third Dynasty. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, this wooden boat had a length of about 18 meters. Mm -hmm. And it was this eerie experience of excavating a boat in the middle of the desert, mm -hmm. which was really something extraordinary. extraordinary. So this uh, was a, just to clarify, this was a third dynasty tomb at Abu Sia? Yes, yes. This this was the third dynasty tomb at Abu Sir, and uh, south of this tomb, after the, the, the excavations of the tomb ended, uh, we, uh, by chance, we have come across a wooden boat. And uh, based on the archaeological context, based on the associated finds, uh, this boat is uh, from uh, the period of uh, the existence of this tomb. Mm -hmm. And we can connect the tomb. Uh, with the boat. Unfortunately, we don't have the, neither the name nor the titles of the owner of the tomb. Oh, well. So he must have been quite a high-ranked person of the late Third Dynasty. There mm -hmm. was a bowl uh, with an inscription of King Huni found mm -hmm. uh, in the Mastaba, in the burial chamber, but we don't uh, have the name uh, and the titles. Malish. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, so uh, when when was the third dynasty tomb and the boat? When were you working on that? The mastaba was excavated in 2010, and uh, okay. the boat uh, was uh, excavated and studied in 2015 and 2016. Hmm. But it's not yet published. It's sure. one of the many things that we excavated, <laughs> and uh, uh, they are uh, still in the pipeline. Uh, although. To say, for my part, the tombs uh, in which I have participated or uh, I was leading the excavations, we are uh, we have published the <laughs> preliminary reports, and right now I'm working on the one uh, remaining uh, little tomb from the 2016. So uh, I will have all my debts paid. Very good. For now, <laughs> that's very that that is very quick for archaeology. Just five years. That's good. So uh, one last question, which is something that I, I ask everyone who comes on this show, which is that, you know, looking back at the at the, the ancient world, if you could answer one question or if you could definitively fill just one gap in the archaeological data, you know, 100% certainty, just put one issue to rest, what would you choose to know and why? Uh it's this big question of the production and uh, use of arsenical copper because uh, in uh, many things and in many cases uh, you can still go uh, back to contemporary Egypt and ask craftspersons, ask uh, um, uh, local population about the meaning of certain things, about how they use them, uh, how they uh, produce them. But uh, this uh, craft of the production of arsenical copper objects 
is long lost because mm. in the Middle Kingdom and in the New Kingdom, the ancient Egyptians moved to the production of tin bronze, which is mm. uh, quite usual. And tin bronze is also for specific purposes used until present day. Mm-hmm. But uh, in case of arsenic and copper, this knowledge is completely lost. So we have to reconstruct uh, uh, this knowledge from the sources, from the artifacts themselves, and uh, from uh, the, but unfortunately, written and iconographic texts are not that helpful in this regard. Mm. So this would be a thing that I would like to ask some ancient Egyptian metal worker how they were use, how they were doing this and uh, how they were producing uh, those objects. Sit down for a couple of days with a metal worker and just watch what he's doing, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, that, that would yep. be lovely. <laughs> Absolutely, fair enough. Well, Martin, that brings me to the end of my questions and thank you very much for answering them. I think that was a really, really fascinating topic that I would like to, to know more about in future. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast and I hope you'll consider joining the show again in the future to discuss you know, the next steps of your research. And then when you finally crack the code of arsenical copper, we can, you can come back and celebrate. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. My thanks to Dr. Odler for joining me in this discussion. If you are interested to learn more about his research, follow the links in the episode description. There you can find his articles for free on academia.edu or his book that is now available on Amazon. Follow the links and learn more about ancient Egyptian tools, technology, and what archaeologists can learn from them. That's all from me. I will see you next week. May Ptah keep your tools sharp and sturdy, and always guide your chisel. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.